1: On today's episode, the real Willy Wonka is a 30-year-old in Canada working in conjunction with his sister and his brother-in-law to build the next massive chocolate company.
0: And we're going to talk about a 25-year-old who's built a multi-million dollar agency holding company, and you might even call him the next Andrew Wilkinson. (laughs)
1: What is up, everybody. My name is Michael Sikand. Uh, this is our future podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Simran Sandhu, and my co-founder. He and I built a media company that we sold to Morning Brew in January, and we did so in our early 20s. And we dedicate this podcast to studying other people who've been really successful in their early, mid-20s, under the age of around 30. And we take their tactics and their strategies and try to help bring those to you and, and make it digestible. So uh, we have two great founders on deck, like you saw in the intro, and we're excited to get in.
0: Pretty much. Yeah. If you're listening to the Our Future podcast, our goal is that you leave here either with an idea or some inspiration that you can go take to your business and hopefully rack up some M's in the bank account.
1: Yeah. So back to Willy Wonka, Uh, a chocolate factory has been built in Canada and it's churning out the next Hershey's. So this guy, uh, Jake Carls, he's 30 years old, started the business when he was like 23 and he teamed up with his sister, Leslie Carls, uh, and her husband, Nick Saltarelli. And they've built a functional chocolate company. So it's called Midday Squares. And essentially it's these these little square chocolates that are infused with plant-based protein. They're vegan. Uh, They're mainly dark chocolate. So kind of a better for you, healthy indulgence. They've sold over 20 million of these products and they are at 8,000 retailers nationwide. So from one chocolate square company to the next, we recently talked about uh, Tabs, which is the sex chocolate. This is a little different. Uh, it's more of a chocolate just to make you feel good. doesn't matter, you know, what you end up doing late at night. So, yeah, I don't know what it is with all these uh, chocolate squares, but clearly, uh, clearly a good opportunity <laughs> for, for these young entrepreneurs, you know? Dude, it's functional chocolate. Are, does that not get you amped up? Uh Functional, yes. If you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, like there's a lot of value in being functional. I mean, Olipop, like one of the biggest giants in kind of this e world, they brand themselves as functional soda. So, you know, functional equals dollar signs. That's the takeaway here. For this company specifically, these guys read a report that said dark chocolate is growing 30% year over year. And so... They had something here, right? And I think you have that great story about Bezos, right? Like it's like he read a mm-hmm. report that like the internet was supposed to be the next big thing, or maybe it was like books, and so yeah, he found he found his opportunity there.
1: Yeah, it was like you know the internet is growing at x thousand percent. But yeah, dude, huge business that they've built. Um, there's so many interesting parts about it. Um, I would start with the way that they kind of tell their own story and how they've been able to For sure. kind of amass such a large audience over a hundred thousand Instagram followers, huge social presence. And it goes back to this great saying that I learned from the CEO of T-Mobile, John Legere, which is every great story has a villain. The idea behind that, right. Is like, they have been talking about how Hershey's and Mondelez control everything on the shelf. And their goal is to kind of disrupt this monopoly of sorts of, you know, these unhealthy companies, these giants been around for hundreds of years. And these three crazy family members are essentially trying to disrupt it. And they've almost built themselves into like the Kardashians of functional chocolate. Like it's very bizarre, but it works. Um, They've created almost a reality TV show in their social content. Like instead of creating a lot of content, like celebrating the product, they focus on the storytelling, right? So like Hey, like we're these crazy motherfuckers. Like we built a fucking factory, and like we nearly go bankrupt every day. But like we're doing this so we can disrupt, you know, the monoliths, uh, the kind of big established stalwarts of this industry. And you're along for the ride. We're either gonna crash and burn, or we're gonna win. And it gives the haters something, and it gives like the supporters something too. So it's like, you know, you got to build for for both the haters and uh, and for the people who want to see you win, because. You know, who knows what's going to happen? At least they're, they're saying that, the, yeah, they might fail, but like come and watch for the entertainment, you know?
0: Dude, Michael Bloomberg has this great kind of thesis on this, which is big companies have everything, right? They have capital, they have resources, they have um, tremendous infrastructures, and, you know, they're deeply rooted in this space. But where you win is pure grit. Right. That is something where they can't beat you. They can't turn on a dime like, you know, a scrappy entrepreneur can. Mm -hmm. They can't come in with this flashy social media material that Midday Squares is coming in with. Right. Like it's it's a little taboo for them. You're not going to see Hershey's pop out this kind of content. So that's something that, you know, they've really capitalized on. And one thing that I would talk about here is kind of their manufacturing strategy. Um, You know, it wasn't necessarily intentional. It was came out of necessity which was they had to build out their own factories because it was a two-layer product so it was a brownie like bottom and a tart like top and the issue is is that you couldn't go to many co-packers or co-mans and get this produced because not many of them could even support this so it ended up being like a huge burden that they had to deal with but to me it feels like one of their competitive moats at this point
1: yeah i think on this pod we always emphasize like Having the lowest friction, like finding the kind of being like water. I'm like, young founders got to be like that H2O. They got to follow <laughs> the path of least resistance. You know what I'm saying? They got to flow. For sure. They gotta yeah. find they gotta find their little aqueduct into their industry. But these guys have done so many things that are like, why are you doing that? It's so hard. Like, why why are you giving yourself this challenge? But it's because they're crazy. It's because they've got that the Elon Musk of chocolate energy, is that they're doing these things that are super hard. Like they've built their little gigafactory in Canada and they've decided to build a refrigerated product instead of a shelf stable product, which is fucking crazy in itself because that's way harder to ship e-commerce and it's way harder so to. True. It's way hard. You have to refrigerate. The shipping costs are higher, right? Um, and they've done—they've just done a lot of things that are hard. And uh, one thing about their factory was an interesting fundraising method. So, yeah, you know, a uh, wealthy and successful entrepreneurs—they hate government handouts. No, no, no. You know, I'm a social moderate. I'm a fiscal conservative. Until the government offers them a fat check, and in this case. <laughs> <laughs> well the government (laughs)
0: takes so much money away you know it's nice when they actually shell it back out it actually goes back to the community
1: i know back often
0: but it does happen sometimes
1: i know it's great it's great to see the government giving handouts to people who want to sell a business for 100 million um uh so they they went so they, they couldn't raise money to build a factory so they went to the the city of like montreal and we're like I don't know if it was Ottawa or Montreal. I guess it's the same thing. But It's like, Mo-
0: Montreal. Yeah. They went to government. the government
1: and they're like, yo, the government's like, I'm down to build this. We want to create jobs and we want to bring innovation to our city. So yeah, I mean, Elon Musk couldn't have built Tesla without kind of like the factory uh, subsidies he got from the government. And there's so many businesses that benefit from these subsidies. So yeah, they were able to get it done in an alternative fundraising format. And I think it's an interesting framework for entrepreneurs to think about because most people just think go to VCs, go to private capital, but there are other sources of capital that can be like really legit. And having the city, you know, having the mayor on your side, like you got the key to the city. No, it's so true though. And the issue is, is that like 90%
0: of D2C businesses or e commerce businesses have a co man or co packer, right? So you're in that sl- small minority if you're actually building out your ma- manufacturing capabilities. And man, is it expensive. Like you have to shell out close to, say, three to $4 million to build out your own factory. So, like e commerce, tons of risk to begin with when you think about can this even, um, you know, adopt a large consumer base? But then on top of it, shelling out $4 million just to even get that first unit produced is also like pretty crazy. So they defied the odds for sure and you know made something really cool out of this.
1: Well, like the, the going advice in D2C is like what Moise and Ali and, and Nick Sharma say on their pod, which is like, if you want to do a consumer product, just make a 3D render, like put ads behind it and like see if people will actually buy it. They didn't even go through that process. They just went all in. And I thought that was really interesting. And sometimes to make the product you want like you do have to jump through these crazy hoops It make it, I think of the story of Harry's razors. The company was started by a co-founder of Warby yeah. Parker and another guy, uh, Jeff Katz. And and they were like, um, or Jeff Raider, And they were like, Oh, um, we have to design a very specific blade that can only be manufactured in this German factory. And we have to acquire the factory in order to build this business. So it was one of those other things where it's like, okay, like, we're going to do something really hard at the beginning and it's going to be really hard to get the funding to do it, but it's going to set this business up for long-term success. And I think that deserves admiration, especially when well, most young entrepreneurs are trying to take the path of least resistance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And this actually makes me think of dip and Dots. So dip and Dots has a crazy story. So company was founded back in 1988. They ended up going bankrupt in 2011 and then an oil tycoon bought the business for $12 million in 2012 and then in 2019, they were doing over $330 million in revenue. So what they did that was so different is they not only went direct to grocery and bought a popcorn brand, so you got the sweet and salty, but then they ended up licensing Dip and Dots crypto quick freeze technology to pharma companies and plant meat companies for huge fees. So a lot of that came back to the fact that they had these manufacturing capabilities in the first place. It's like, yeah. okay, we know you can do this with your factory, but what is the highest leverage opportunity that we can get out of this, right? So mm. that's what big companies are
1: really good,
0: uh, good at, is like, how do you squeeze every little dollar that you can possibly make with what
1: you have? Yeah, that, uh, that's a great business story uh, with dip and Dots. I've done a video on that before. Um And I think a lot of consumer brands just think, okay, we need to build a brand that people love, but it's also the technology and IP, I feel like is like a little bit slept on behind the scenes. So they've built like, you know, some, some really strong intellectual property with this dual layer chocolate of a brownie bottom and a a tart top. Right. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good moat for them. The next thing is like what I, uh, I'll bring up the story of the five hour energy guy, the five hour energy guy really wanted to get into the energy category, but he was looking at the wrong place he was looking at his comparables being red bull and monster who dominated the shelf space and convenience but what if i could put a shelf stable uh small kind of shot at the cash register at checkout you know caffeine's typically an impulse buy along with you know you know with those other products behind the counter like cigarettes and other things like that and lottery tickets what if i could build an energy product in that arena so it's like sometimes to 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 win in your category you have to create a new environment for where people like see it and consume it. So they're in the refrigerated section, more of like in kind of where you'd go into a grocery store and get like a fresh snack, like go into a Whole Foods, get a yogurt parfait, or one of those refrigerated protein bars, or like a yeah. to-go sandwich, right? That's like where they exist. And I thought that was a super interesting playbook, which is also really hard to build a D2C company with a fresh product, but you know, creates a serious moat in, in retail and puts you away from your competitive set.
0: Dude, placement is so huge in D2C. And I also think the medium through which the product is being delivered is also so important. Because I think if you think of most energy-related products, right, it's a bottle, it's a beverage. But the genius behind 5-Hour Energy, it's it's like the small canister, right? So the cost of goods to produce it is going to be significantly cheaper compared to, like, producing a can of, you know, Monster or a can of Red Bull. And I think a good point here is actually the cost profile that you need to think about. So, you know, Carl, Jake, Jake Carls gave us some good numbers on like the cost profile you have to think about. When you're starting in e commerce or D2C brand and you're looking to go into retail, think about how much you're actually gonna lose out to other parties. So, on average, you'd have to give up, say, 30% to a retailer, you'd have to give 20% up to a distributor, and then you'd have to give 5% up to a broker right? So you're out 55% on average, right? Some products may not necessarily fall under this profile just from the start, just to get into retail. So you got to be so smart about your unit economics right from the jump, right? Like your goal again, should be trying to make as profitable as a product. And it's not something that you can just grow into, Like try to focus on how you can stretch every penny and dollar as far as you possibly can.
1: Yeah, that's a great insight for consumer. It's it's such a fucking crack shoot when it comes to giving away your margin. You know, you're just handing it out to mofo's to get you into the places you need to be. So, um, dude, so they're, true. They're a retail first company, but retail first is way more of a moat. Like, if you really spend the years to get across, like the nationwide distribution and retail, like you've built a business that immediately has a way higher multiple if you were just like D 2 C, right? So that really is the kind of golden posts the goalposts for consumer brands is to, is to dominate uh, like with nationwide distribution. But dude, I, I love this story. They're fucking crazy. They're eccentric. Um, and they're taking a big swing. Uh, when I go back to the heroes and villains side of things with Jean Legere, it's like, okay, like, you're gonna say these big conglomerates are the villains until <laughs> but until they, but then they're gonna offer you a hundred million dollar term. Until they sheet.
0: shell out that check. Yeah. And you bet
1: you, you better clean up that website real quick. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you better revise that content strategy, all right? Uh, because they're no longer the villain, right? They are you know, no longer the villain. Some might even say the hero. Dude, it's like society, right? You know, you commit crimes and if you got money, you can pay to not be the villain anymore. It's awesome. For don't sure. Have to go to jail. For sure. Don't have to yeah. Don't have to lose anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, this business is 70% retail, 30% D to C or e-commerce in this case. And you know, they've raised a lot of money, 17 and a half million dollars. How do you feel about that? Like, I don't know too many companies who've raised that kind of coin, but like you've got to sell for hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. Like at that point you've removed that optionality from the table, right? Like a small exit just doesn't make sense.
1: No. Yeah. You have to, you have to sell for a big amount, or you actually have to do what you said you did, which is disrupt like the multi-billion dollar. Hershey's you got to disrupt Hershey's. Yeah. yeah. And those yeah. are amazing businesses, by the way, like Mondelez Hershey's are incredibly profitable. They're publicly traded firms. Um, and they have an incredible portfolio of products. So, you know, M&A is hot though. And, and the snacking and healthy indulgence category, we talked about that with Smuckers when we we're talking about Mezcla and people do still consume a lot of these, these kind of, healthy indulgence products and even just indulgences. So yeah, we'll see what happens. But excited to hear about the next story because uh uh this one's definitely a little more tactical when it comes to something that maybe young entrepreneurs can lean into more and, and get something off the ground.
0: Yeah so Jay Carls and the team at Midday Square is super impressive. But for the next story for today Again, it's a 25-year-old entrepreneur. He's bootstrapped his way to a multimillion-dollar agency holding company. His name is David Riggs, and he's got a great story. So, um, you know, young kid, lives on a golf course with his parents, and, you know, decides he wants to make a buck or two. So he brings out a bucket, and he goes around the golf course, and he's essentially picking out these golf balls that people have forgot about puts it in his little pail, and then he decides to sell them. And, you know, he's making some good money until one day somebody actually labeled their golf ball, right? So it had <laughs> their name on there, and they they caught him. And it was like, dude, I know you didn't just, like, steal my golf ball and then try to sell it to me. Like, crazy. Essentially, that side hustle comes to a stop, realize, like, you know, he got caught. That's not going to work for him. So then he goes into shoes. So, you know, been listening to Gary Vee, and he decides this you know, flip strategy with shoes could be the next big thing for him. That was however, until he gets mugged. So kind of a hard stop on side hustle number two, which is, which is unfortunate, right? White boys, but white like,
1: boys love, white boys love selling Jordans until they get roughed up. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy.
0: You know, it's, it's so funny, but, I was just going to say like every like any good entrepreneur, right? Like just cuz you've had a few L's, that ain't going to stop you. So, yeah, just a little try number little 3. Mugging.
1: Yeah, it's all good. Exactly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> try number 3. So, his dad has a few friends that were looking for help on social media. So, David actually started, you know, helping do this for them on the low, right? He's not charging them much, but he's trying to build up this competency. At the same time, he's studying finance, right? Because he feels like he's kind of getting pushed into the corporate finance and uh, private equity world. And people are trying to tell him, you know, David, that's what you're going to go do. That's what you need to go learn. Um, it ends up not necessarily working out for him. So he goes back and he finds the five or six wealthiest people in his network. And he says, what is the problem that you guys are all facing? And what he notices, everything goes
1: back to the golf course, man. It's Everything like, goes back to the damn. golf course. Oh, okay, okay. I need to find five wealthy people. I wonder how hard it was, you know. Well, <laughs> Scott's it's like, playing bro, on hole nine. Around.
0: It's your neighbor. Yeah. Tim
1: is on hole twelve. All right, I'm gonna go walk over five minutes, and boom, I've got my wealthy people. <laughs> Dude, so
0: true. It's like, hey, I know I may have stolen your golf ball back in the day, but listen, I've got a real business opportunity this time. <laughs> uh, but you know, he goes to them and he's like, "What's the what's the issue you're facing?" Turns out, a lot of them are struggling with like their social presence and how to build awareness for their company online. And so they essentially contract them out to build their websites for them. Right. So he builds a pretty big business from this. But the issue with websites is that you can only build them once. Right. So, how do you actually build a business where you're getting paid on a monthly basis? Enter in SEO. SEO has been around for decades. But again, people need it every single month because they want to place high on Google search results. So, he takes the cash flow from there and he notices that you know, I have a lot of expenses for this agency. What if I use this cash flow and started buying up other agencies that can, you know, are essentially an expense of mine, but then I can start selling those to other companies. And so that was his strategy. He's built yeah. a massive company doing this and I'm excited to chop it up with you.
1: hundred percent, yeah. Um, didn't this guy used to be your business rival in college? Is that true?
0: I wouldn't necessarily say business rival. I think, he was like we, your you know, nemesis. we had a lot- no, I wouldn't say nemesis. We were fraternity brothers back in college, which is which okay. is pretty crazy, right? Like, um, yeah, it was like one of those things where I would say we're both pretty hated by our fraternity house because at the time it was like not cool to be an entrepreneur um and so we were never like around for like house jobs and stuff and we were like paying people to do like our housework and stuff like that so yeah yeah, i don't think either of us were liked all that much
1: shitty pledges bro shitty pledges like i I wasn't a great pledge either but like it's always the shitty pledges who are probably going to be rich you know what i'm saying like
0: Um, (laughs) Oh wait, you're roasting me. You're, you're, you're saying I'm a shitty pledge.
1: Well, I was saying I wasn't really a great one either. I mean, I, what I like to do (laughs) when I was pledging is just like talk back to people and just like do ridiculous shit, but we won't get, we won't get deep into that. Um, with, with rigs, uh, I think, uh, what we talk about on this podcast a lot is how agencies aren't scalable, right? Like they're hard to exit And they're really hard to scale because I think most people, when they're just a one solopreneur, maybe they have a co-founder, like you kind of tap out in the 20 to 40k revenue range when you're just depending on independent contractors and stuff. So how do you scale an agency? Well, if you're going, there are agencies that exist that are worth hundreds of millions, right? Gary Vee is a great example with VaynerMedia um, and some of these Madison Avenue agencies as well, right? Yeah. Like
0: WPP, massive multi-billion dollar agency in the ad space.
1: Yeah. So the way you grow an agency is, okay, if I personally can't bring in more than 20, 40k a year, I have to go and buy other agencies with good operators. But then the, the challenge you run into is agencies are very personnel dependent, like you have to have great leaders who are running their own agency, and like they have to be the yeah. people who started them, right? So the key that Riggs has identified is how do I build a culture, right, that enables uh, these people who used to run their own agency, now that they're acquired and acquired. hired how do I continue to embolden them to do keep growing revenue and keep running a good shop? And a big part of that is just giving them a salary, right? I think a lot of people um, grind on the agency path, get disillusioned, there's no exit opportunity, and then just getting a salary is like kind of awesome. 'Cause then you know, a lot of people I feel like build agencies for lifestyle reasons, right?
0: Well, dude, that's the thing, right? Like I think more people are shifting away from a pure play W-2. It's like, hey, I want more control. I want more freedom, right? So what do you go do? You go start a consulting firm, you go start an agency, maybe you go start an econ brand if we're gonna go one level up. And the issue is, is that you actually have less freedom this way, because at least at your job, you were only serving one master. Now you like you have 10 different clients, assuming like business is good. And now you have to deal with a bunch of BS, right? So that's why a lot of people just get disillusioned, like you said. And so, you know, he goes and has a conversation with these people who are essentially like his vendors and, and, you know, partners within the agency. And he says, like, what is it that you really want? Right. Like at the end of the day. And a lot of them were just like, hey, I want freedom. I want to have some control over my career. But at the end of the day, I just want a really good salary. And he's like, great. Well, how about you essentially become a divisional head where we'll roll your agency up underneath like this big umbrella. And I believe it's called Numa Holdings. Um, and like, you're going to have all of the insight around how uh, all the other agencies in, you know, this corporate umbrella are doing, and you're essentially going to have the resources and the infrastructure that we can help you grow and scale your business. Right. So it's giving them what they want. It's helping you grow your holding company. And at the same time, like, it's just a win-win for everybody involved. And I think that was kind of the key unlock that he did.
1: Yeah. I think the culture first approach is like how a business like this, uh, is the only way it's going to scale. Right. It's like, we've talked about this before. Like it's almost harder to build a good culture than it is to build a big business. So really being intentional about that piece and like emboldening smart people to make decisions in a larger organization is just so crucial it's how all the big companies so operate right like yeah. i feel like in a lot of these biographies these ceos are more passionate about the culture they built than the actual business they built like whenever you read one of these biographies from like a bloomberg or a schwartzman or uh you know a Yvonne chenard from patagonia it's always like so prideful of their people and i feel like that is something that's been overlooked lately when it's all about the hero entrepreneur building to an a, an exit. You know what I mean?
0: Well, the culture is what you have to get right in order to truly scale. Right? Yeah. Like that's that can't be one of those things well, that you just kind of leave on the back burner. Like it can, like let's but say- it'll get to you.
1: Like it'll get what? it'll come back. Right? It's it, like you can build that's Uber. That's true. You can yeah. build Uber and have a toxic environment where you're absolutely ripping and people are like pressure to excel and like or elon musk where like people are unhappy and scared but they're actually doing the best work they've ever done in their life but then it comes to bite you in your in the ass later right
0: i actually think that's okay though because that is a culture in itself right like that is a cutthroat culture that is we value excellence over anything else you are going to move upward in this company purely based on merit. There is not going to be any corporate politics involved, which is I think how Tesla and some of these like cutthroat companies work. It's just like, Mm. show me what you can do. How willing are you to really grind day and night for this mission? And that's how you actually move forward in the organization. Again, it's probably pretty toxic and it's probably not fun to work there, but that is the culture and it takes a certain kind of person. And I think that in itself actually is a good filter, right? Because most people aren't cut out for that. So they're not going to work there and they're not going to be a good fit.
1: Mm-hmm. Another good story about uh, Riggs is he cold emailed Cuban to do a website yeah. for, him for free for one of his portfolio companies. And doing a Cuban company was super instrumental in him being able to sell like bigger clients. So I think that's like a great takeaway for young entrepreneurs is that, you know, put it, maybe put aside the pride on getting paid for your work when you're early on and then just get a great case study and then use that, uh, to expand your client base to more high leverage companies and bigger, like share of wallet companies. For it, it's so right.
0: true. You just need one hero client and you can milk their name for tons of deals and opportunities in the road. So that's yeah, how you that's, have to that think was about us. it, right? That was us it's, with HubSpot. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's like, you got to have that long-term mindset You know that you have to kind of accept it right because most people are trying to make money from the jump But the reality is is that you actually need to do a lot of free work in the beginning Because that's where you're going to build the skill and the competence um, To actually know what it is what you're doing because what you don't want to happen is The opportunity presents itself, but you're not prepared Right? That big fish comes around and you can't actually help them or you do shitty work and you've essentially closed that door forever. So it's best if you kind of work out the kinks with like these smaller companies and you know, maybe you're not getting paid a whole lot, but at least you're developing your skills and your competency.
1: Yeah, I think a good playbook is like find small clients and like just get the playbook right. Understand the skill, the service and the skill you have and what you're doing for clients, get some results. Then bring that to somebody who might take a chance on you at a bigger level. And then once that person takes a chance on you, do great work and then use that to, to sell clients that are on their level, right? So that's how you can graduate in the agency world. And I think what you and I have always said for any young people considering doing an agency, it's always better to have a few high paying clients than a ton of low paying clients. And the biggest so paradox I learned in the agency world was the clients who pay the least give you the most hell. And I'm like, that is, such a, <laughs> that is such a paradox. It's like, what? Like that makes no sense, but it's true, right? People who are paying the least are the most stingy and the most kind of like overbearing. So. Um, you know, it was funny, Oliver Bricotta, the founder, uh, co-founder of tabs, uh, made a tweet and he's like, stop glorifying the kid who's making $1,500 per client with 10 clients. I got a buddy who's doing two hours of work a day at Meta making 500 K a year. Right. So that's the funny part about agencies is like, Oh, self-made, you know, independent entrepreneur. But like, you're really like, you're really like working really hard for pretty little.
0: Well, look, agencies are a good place to cut your teeth. We've talked about this a lot, right? Like, build some skills. You get to actually learn how it is to work with a client. You can actually think about how to build a team, right? And then, you know, you go focus on a higher leverage opportunity, uh, you know, in the future. So, yeah, it has its pros and cons, but so does everything else. So, um, you know, very bullish on rigs in general. I think, like, you know, he's, he's built a pretty big seven-figure business out of this, but give him, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And who knows, it could be truly the next big Andrew Wilkinson. And he might have a nine figure, you know, holding company on his hands.
1: Well, it's a great story, man. And, and, you know, this story that we just talked about a lot more accessible, right. To think about for young entrepreneurs doing kind of taking an agency to the next level, as opposed to trying to build a factory and build a, a consumer product and get into retail. Right. So like two sides of the spectrum, um, but, but both are, have a good framework for how they're going to get to like their eventual goal of like massive scale and in, in both kinds of businesses. So good episode. For yeah. Sure.
0: Yeah. So I think that pretty much wraps up another episode of our future podcast. Michael and I love doing this week after week. Please hit us with any feedback that you have and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. We will hit you next week again with another two founders who are crushing it in their industry. So stay frosty. I hope everyone
1: has a great rest of their week. Peace out, everybody. Subscribe on YouTube.